Greetings, greenhouse people. I'm your host, Bill Calkins, and in an effort to provide this critical information in any way you choose to consume it, I've worked with my guest, and we are going to make this a video and a podcast, and maybe we'll put together a document as well. But I do want to introduce this gentleman, someone who has been integral in the Tech on Demand team and in our resources since its inception. It's Dr. Will Healy. Will has more than three decades of experience working with greenhouses of all shapes and sizes, growing an entire range of crops and all around the world. And he helps them implement best practices and strategies to uh, produce amazing crops in all different situations. Will retired recently from Ball Horticultural, and but he definitely think continues to think about ways to help growers even in his retirement. In fact, he contacted me recently with a whole bunch of topics he wants to cover, and we're going to try to pick them off one at a time. Our topic today is actually kind of gross. Uh, I'm not going to lie. It's really gross when I heard about it, but it's one that I've seen in a lot of greenhouses and Will has seen in a lot of greenhouses. And he told me that it was kind of a mystery that he's worked on over his career. It's a mystery for a lot of growers, but he's definitely cracked the code and solved the mystery. And today we're going to talk about slime, moss, and algae in young plant production, what causes it, and how to avoid it. A lot of this comes down to water management from the time you mix your substrates. And Will is going to dig into that in more detail. If you like this installment, be sure to subscribe to the Tech on Demand podcast on your favorite app, like Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much all of them. And you will find dozens more videos on the Ball Seed YouTube channel. But that's enough out of me. Will, welcome back to Tech on Demand. Tell me exactly why we are going to spend time on a Friday afternoon talking about slime and moss and algae when you could actually be out in your garden drinking lemonade. Is it just because you like to use the terms hydrophobic and hydrophilic or because you want to show us close-ups of slimy plug cells? Why are we talking slime and algae and, and mold today? Well, I consider it to be one of the great mysteries um, of the greenhouse plug production and finished production. And actually even under the bench production where people kind of always wonder, why, why do I get slime? And then the slime goes to liverworts and it's just like all kinds of problems. Um, insect problems, disease problems, and they just kind of just fumigate and ferment. And it's just, it's been one of those, um, why do people have this? And so I've actually even challenged some of the people I've worked with to have a contest. Who can grow the most algae and slime in the shortest period of time? <laughs> That's funny. And I'm not going to say where I was, and this was years ago. This is probably more than 15 years ago. I went to two greenhouses in the same day. And so they were right down the road from each other. One was a huge greenhouse. And it actually wasn't, I mean, it was they were doing they were doing a great job. A really good supplier. And but it was it was filthy. And there was a ton of algae. And I remember specifically walking through the greenhouse, being careful not to slip and fall. There was algae growing on their trays, on the benches. And then the next greenhouse I went to down the road, again, production greenhouse, was pristine. It was honestly one of the cleanest greenhouses I've ever been in in my entire life. 
And I just remember thinking, wow, this, this says a lot about, I guess, production management and what's important to each of those different operations. I'm sure you have some thoughts on that as well. Why don't you go ahead and share your screen and take us through this mystery and, and how you've, you think you've solved it or helped growers solve this problem over the years. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I think that we shouldn't put a stigma on um, good or bad. I think the stigma is confused and unconfused. Mm. Um, because if you ask growers, why do you have algae or why do you not have algae? They all kind of look at you like, huh? I don't know. So it's it's one of those great mysteries of this industry. And so basically one of my goals has always been to try to figure out how did they do that? Where does that algae come from? What What is the whole situation that gets us to this point where we have the mess that we see on our screen today? So what I'd like to do, Bill, is kind of take you through a journey that I've um, put myself through um, to better understand how do you get to the point where you basically end up with um, moving from, you know, the situation where you have kind of this creeping, unrelenting nightmare that goes from a little bit to a lot to all of a sudden we have our friends, the liverworts. And you almost have to throw your hands up in the air and go like, there's no winning. We're done. Because yes, you can use chemicals, but then they the chemicals are designed to kill biological activity, kind of like the plants we're trying to grow. Mm. So trying to use chemicals to clean these up and get rid of them usually means dead plants, bad plant. Going and sending an army of people out there to scoop stuff out, not really labor efficient, especially in these days where there is none. So really the question is, um, if we look at the picture on the left and try to understand how did they have in one tray in basically in 15 cells, you know, if you go um, three up and five over, in those 15 cells, how did they go from none to algae on its way and no future for them other than slimy um, scum to a borderline maybe, maybe not? So in those 15 cells, they basically have managed to do this. And so this has always been kind of the starting point of how'd you do that? Because you are good enough to do this if you do the right things. And so let's talk about how do you do the right things to not have the this problem? What are some of the real dr economic drivers? People say, well, I'm not going to screw around. You know, it, it is what it is. Well, if you have a fungus net larvae problem, you basically should go back and look at, do you have this whole problem of the, um, uh, basically you get a slime on there. And once you've got the slime, you're moving water through slowly. If you move water through slowly, it's a perfect habitat to grow larva for fungus nets and shore flies and even um, drain flies are another one that's really good. Um, but And then also it's a happy place for thrips. It's a happy place for a lot of things in this little um, layer that forms when you have um, this formation. That crust that develop basically also as it builds, it slows water movement down through the cells so that you end up with ununiform water um, root development 
And if you have don't have good roots, you're not going to have good plants. And so it's really important that you basically don't have this crust on the top. And also, let us just all accept the fact that once you add crust and the moss begins to grow, it's game over. There is no fixing this um, once that happens. You know, it's you can scrape it out, but it'll come back. Trust me, people have tried and everyone has proven to be unsuccessful getting rid of it. So it's a problem that we really need to fix way before it ever starts. So let's start back into the plug stage or even in your um, soil mix that you're using to fill pots and packs and everything where you might be having this and come to the realization that the ideal soil, the ideal medium is screened to have different fiber sizes, some very fine, all the way up to very coarse. And of course, if you're using plugs, you tend to have fine to medium fibers because the coarse stuff don't go in the plug tray. So, and you wanna have, you know, you don't wanna have sticks and all that other stuff. So you really have a very fine. And of course, the reason for that is, is that it flows and it fills the small cells better. So that's why in a perfect world, it's an ideal mix. Um, and it really doesn't make any difference whether you're talking about a wood-based um, fiber in there, you're talking about perlite in there, you're talking about peat in there. It basically, it's all the same. You have to have a certain fiber or a certain cell um, particle size to get it to fill. And so it's really, we're talking about, we're on the bottom end of the fiber size. If we take a look at the graph that I show, and th this was an example where they went in fraction into using sieves into different size of the um, peat fiber um, and how much there was. And if you notice that in peat, you can basically have a lot what is called dust, which is very fine um, fiber. It's almost, if you blow it, it just, it's gone. So that's the really the dust. And you tend to end up with a lot of dust in these very fine fiber mixes that we use in um, plug mixes, which is good because it has water holding capacity. If you didn't have it, it basically drain, you'd be watering out there like 24 hours a day. Um, on the other end, you've got chunks, which are big pieces, which of course we don't want. So we tend to have a lot of very fine to medium fiber. And it's that distribution that Bill Fontenot down in North Carolina showed many, many years ago, did great work on what is the ideal mix. And I think everyone pretty much goes. The other problem that you run into, and this is a frequent, um, if you're using um, a mixer before you go into your flat filler, where you're handling the fiber and you're basically mixing it for a long period of time trying to get it wet and or you're just mixing it for a long period of time just to move it around and you're grinding it up so that you're taking what are large particles and making small particles you're basically creating that fine dust and that of course is a bad thing and you'll see why that dust is so critical in the formation of crust because it basically um, it is what causes um, the crust to form. Now, Bill, you mentioned two words and I really wanted to talk about this is the hydrophobic and hydrophilic. Now, hydrophobic um, is what happens to fine fiber when it sits around. Um, if it sits around for any length of time, it dries out very fast because it has very few macro pores, which are the big pores that hold water and also very few uh, micro pores. So it just tends to lose that water like that. It basically becomes dust very fast. Hydrophobic means that it repels water. The beauty of peat moss is that it will hold a bunch of water and it releases it very slowly. But when it gets to a certain point where it's dry, it resists water uptake. It basically becomes water repellent. It repels water. It, be, it becomes what is called a hydrophobic. 
On the opposite end of the continuum is hydrophilic. This is where it absorbs water very rapidly. And so most peat mosses that aren't tan, that usually means that they're probably hydrophobic, but they're more brown or um, dark black and dark brown, those are tend to be hydrophilic. They're going to absorb water very freely. And once they reach saturation, they're going to release that water very nicely. Whereas when they're that tan color, they're probably not going to absorb water and they're not going to, there's nothing to release. So it's not going to release any. One of the reasons that we're concerned is that the hydrophobic fiber that is dry tends to float when you saturate the soil and it floats up and comes back down. And when it comes back down, it settles into a layer of what is called crust. Um, now, of course, what, what soil manufacturers do is, is they put in wetting agents to reduce the hydrophobia, hydrophobia, which basically, you know, so it absorbs. That's why it's wetting agents or water absorbers. Now, here's the problem, Bill. How old is your mix? Because if you bought too much mix and didn't use it and said, well, we'll use it next year. How long does that um, water um, wet wetting agent last? Probably not 12 months. Oh, absolutely not. It's good for a couple, for maybe six months at best. The other thing is, um, and here's the trick question. Does the wetting agent work better under hot or cold temperatures? Mm, I'll guess cold. You guessed wrong. Ah, it's 50-50. It, it works best when it's warm. In okay. fact, if you basically, you know, in this northern tundra area where we've got very cold soils and you bring that cold soil and you thaw it out and then you put it in the mix and then you say, well, it's not wetting. Well, no, it's because it's too cold. So a lot of times what they'll do is, is um, they'll use warm water, about 70 degrees, 21 degrees centigrade, um, to basically activate the wetting agent to promote it. Conversely, you know, you basically go and take that nice chilly well water at what temperature is that well water at Bill? Depends, but probably pretty cold. 40. Okay. 50. Pretty much at the temperature where you're not going to activate it as well as if you would just have a little bit of warmer water. So, you know, the problem that you run into when you've got these big um, bales of peat moss and you can see where you've got a nice tan streak through a nice brown and you say, OK, well, we're just going to mix that all in. Well, if you don't put the right temperature water or those bales are old, you're not going to activate that. Um, and so that the hydrophobic fiber is going to remain hydrophobic and it's going to float. I know Floaters, that was an issue that we ran into a lot the last couple of years with everybody trying to buy uh, supplies early um, and try yeah. to get ahead of any supply chain issues. Hopefully that's shaken out these days, but I know that uh, there are still plenty of growers who try to order their soil media early. Um, mm -hmm. And then you're right, they're leaving it outside um, it's getting compacted and it's definitely colder and probably losing that wetting agent uh, effectiveness. Right. So you really have to kind of watch all of these factors because these are the moving parts that always get you into trouble. And, you know, this is the subtle piece. This is the piece that probably fell in last in the puzzle of how do we create um, crust, slime and um, algae and moss. Um, this was the piece that suddenly was like, oh, yeah. You know, that two-year-old soil that we're using, we seem to have more problems with that. 
And so when we dug into it, this is this whole hydrophobic, hydrophilic story is what came in. So it's really, um, it's a sleeper. Some people never see it. And they kind of go like, what are you talking about? Well, they're moving soil fast. And then other people are just have soil that's hanging around longer. So anyways, but let's talk a little bit about um, an example. This is I basically took a jar and threw a bunch of um, hydrophobic peat in there and then filled it with water to see what would happen. As you can see really quickly, what happens is you ended up with um, a bunch of hydrophobic floaters on the top. And this is very dry peat because it's basically it repels water. It slowly over time eventually absorbed, but in the process, it formed a very dense layer of a crust. Okay. And then, of course, some of it absorbed water very rapidly and became hydrophilic and it was saturated and it all went to the bottom because it was loaded with water. So we basically, this is what can happen within our different cells. We take a look at the plug tray of what's happening in, in box A is a good example of crust. This is where they um, took dry soil and then they basically watered it, they flooded it, and then all the fine fiber floated up and floated down and they did this several times and they created a very nice probably oh between an eighth and a quarter inch of um, crust on the surface of that soil and then of course if you look at box b box b shows where you can actually see where the algae has begun to grow on that because as the because of the crust layer the water moves slower through that crust and that continuously wet for longer periods of time allow the algae to bloom and grow and so you end up with a nice algae development. First, it forms that slimy layer, that kind of oily slime. And that's the germination of the spores. And then from there, you get the green. And the green then goes to fruiting bodies. And then you're into a permanent death spiral. Um, sometimes, you know, in the box C, you can see where this has been kept wet. And you can basically keep the crust. Now, of course, keeping once you get crust, one of the strategies early on was, well, we'll just keep it wet. Well, that sounds like a good idea unless you're trying to grow roots, because what do we know about water and roots, Bill? We know that um, one of the things we know is that fish grow in water and roots grow in air. So if you have to, so if you go and you continuously are keeping it wet, the roots aren't going to grow. The roots, roots. Want to, they want to avoid that super yeah. wet layer, I guess, in, in the plug saw. Yeah, exactly. Now, the alternative was, oh, we'll just dry it out. Well, then when you get to um, box D where you dried it out and then it basically shrunk because once it shrinks, then it basically the water channels down the edges and that crust prevents basically is like a blanket on top, a piece of plastic on top and all the water is shed off. And so you never get the cells wet. So you end up with a, a death spiral as this crust forms. So we really need to be very careful. So let's take a look at some plug cells where we actually form the crust. Now there's three pictures here that at first glance, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, you really can't see it, but let's take and put some boxes around the problem. So the first one is you can see on this one on the left that you can see the denser, tighter soil forming up there. Now, some people say, well, that was just because we ran a dibble through it and compacted it. No, that's not to do with it. The dibble definitely can compress slightly, but it's really that fine fiber floating up coming down, folding up, coming down, that compresses that because water is weight and that weight basically pulls those fine fibers into that soil. Now, they, this one, um, they basically watered it just a little bit, a lot, so that they basically kept the fiber 
um, small fiber right at the surface. And as you can see, the bottom of the cell is very loose and very airy. So it basically could grow good roots. But if you notice very carefully, they do have a nice green slime starting to form at the top because they kept it too wet too long. The middle picture shows where they have um, kind of a two-tier um, levels of crust. Um, the very top has the algae growing on it, but if you notice how densely packed this, the soil fiber is in the area right below it, that was because they watered more and they're floating more of that fine fiber up because this is a dry soil that they um, tried to wet and they wetted it by floating. Um, and then of course you have your um, very loose, very ideal soil um, with a lot of air for a lot of good root growth. In the third picture, where you have a good slime growing on the top, you can really see how densely packed that soil is in that cell, right, Bill? Mm -hmm. You can really see that in there. Um, and of course, right below it is kind of, um, it's better, but not, um, not too bad. So basically the take home message here is, is dry soil, flooding, putting um, is basically floating all that fine fiber up and that fine fiber is basically um, starting to plug up and create the crust. And of course, it all goes back to the time of flat filling, making sure that you've got adequate moisture in that soil before you ever get started. We'll talk about that. How do you know if you have dry soil or excessively fine fiber? Well, it's fairly easy to do. Take um, a plug cell and 512s are better than 288s, but either one will work. Um, fill the cells up and then just set them out on the greenhouse bench overnight. And if you have inconsistent water application to the soil before it goes into the cells, you will see, you'll see this checkerboarding where you end up with wet and dry cells in there. Some of them um, totally hydrophobic. I think we can pick out the hydrophobic because they're almost white. And we can pick out those that are hydrophilic because they're nice and dark and black. So you've got this rogues mixture of stuff on here. And of course, the worst thing you can do is, of course, cover it with vermiculite after sowing, and then it's all gone. You can't tell, <clears throat> but it's still there. It doesn't go away. And to try to fix this once it's in a plug cell is almost impossible. Because well, you're going to overwater some cells and in, in the attempt to, to bring the water level up in the ones that are dry. I mean, it looks like a, a losing battle right there. Oh, it, it's a lost battle. Um, the best growers I've ever met in the world have never been able to fix this. Hmm. You know, you can make it less bad, water with a, with a wetting agent, but it's less bad. It's never fixed because it has to be fixed before it goes in the, in the bin. So... What, how do you get here? How, do, how did this even happen? I mean, this is always the big question that growers have. How did I do that? Well, the first thing is, is that your flat filler equipment at the end of the processing week should look like the machine was just delivered from the manufacturer. No dirt on it, no soil on it, no dust on it. It should be as clean as a whistle because that soil that's sitting in that bin from the moment you walk away till the moment you come back is doing nothing but drying, drying up. Out. It's be going from hydrophilic to hydrophobic and it's drying out. 
so many times you come up to um, a flat filler that where they have the checkerboarding happening and you basically go, well, look at all this dust and dried soil sitting around on this equipment all over the place. It's falling in randomly. When you've got conveyor belts, one operation that they had soil bins over in one part of the headhouse area and then basically put it on conveyors and hauled it across the greenhouse and dropped it. We went up onto the conveyor belts and there's all kinds of piles of soil that could have been there for the last 10, 15, 20 years and was just fall periodically falling in because they hadn't gone and made sure that the whole distribution system was clean and did not have dry soil in it. Even having that bin where you've got some dry soil in it, it's not uncommon for that to be occurring. And how many times have you looked inside the soil handling equipment and you saw the cake of dried soil in the corners, in the pockets, on the paddles, on this is all contributing because eventually it just falls off and becomes part of the dry soil in that overall. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, underneath where the soil is falling is one place where you absolutely have to make sure that it's cleaned up at the end of the cycle. Um, because, you know, we're going to talk about begonias at some point in one of our talks. And, you know, people sow begonias at the beginning of the week. And of course, the soil has sat there um, all weekend drying out. And of course, then the first thing they do is they sow them. And so the first, say, 50 to 100 trays that they sow have nothing but checkerboarding in it with ununiform germination and all the problems. And it all has to do with housekeeping. It's a good Keep reminder. A very good reminder. Keep the place clean. Clean it up. If you absolutely have to leave soil in the bins because you have no way of emptying it, the, the way to handle it is to, of course, basically wet it down and cover it up mm -hmm. because then it gives it time to basically, if it's going to dry a little bit, it'll dry over that weekend so that Monday morning, it's at least not bone dry and hydrophobic. So there's ways around this if you have to, but be conscious of what's happening so that you don't create your own nightmare. The most uniform way to um, essentially hydrate the soil, make sure it's uniformly mixed, is using one of these barrel mixers. They're the greatest piece of equipment that was ever invented, which is of course the good news and the bad news. The good news is they work fabulously and uniformly because they fluff the soil as the soil goes around and falls and you can get it wet. The bad news is those things are cast iron and they never break. And so that the poor company that made these went out of business because nobody needed, you know, once you had one, it was good forever. So no one ever bought one. So if you can find one of these, buy it. They're golden um, using fogget nozzles inside to um, make sure that you've got adequate um, spray distribution of the soil as it's moved through so that as it mixes, it all gets wet in all directions. Um, if you're using a paddle mixer or a ribbon mixer, um, make sure that you're using fogget nozzles and you're not cheaping out by just taking a pipe and drilling holes and then just squirting holes in because what happens is you end up with a spot that is soaking wet surrounded by an area that is absolutely dry. And then that goes through the system and you end up with checkerboarding. And then of course, a lot of people have gone to um, bail busters. And one of the things that you have to remember is you have to get enough nozzles on that bail buster that are working 
and are distributing the water as a fine as a fog or a spray, uniformly distributing it so you get uniform distribution of water throughout that soil as it's falling in there. And make sure that you've got uniform and that it is working as it should be. So make sure that you've got the water. So let's talk about um, stage one water management for plugs because day zero to five is key period for setting up or causing or not causing the whole problem. During those first um, five days, no flooding. You do not want to have puddles forming in the top because that's basically causing those hydrophobic fibers to come up and float down. So you're basically floating them. You wanna make sure that you're not doing that because you're putting on too much water at one time. How do you do that? Well, you have to remember that the water in any one cell is a function of the speed that you're applying it times the gallons per minute that you're applying. And so we're gonna really talk about this in the different methods. At the end of the day, what you want at the, by the time you get to about the fifth day, you want that surface to be very gritty. You wanna see chunks and pieces and stuff hanging out there so that when it dries, it can pull air down. You do not wanna have this smooth surface, which you can see is just waiting to form a nice um, slimy crust on it because the water is gonna move slowly through this surface and then you're gonna end up with all kinds of different problems. So. Let's talk about water tunnels. Are water tunnels our source of the problem or can we use them as our solution? And it's very important that you think about your water um, tunnel because whether you're filling, you're watering with pots or you're doing trays of plugs or, or packs, it's really important to think through your water tunnel as to what you're trying to do. Because remember, the water per cell is determined by the speed that the belt is moving underneath that nozzle and the nozzle gallons per minute. Those two factors will either cause flooding or will cause a nice watering that's occurring. Remember that the flooding occurs when the speed is slow, the nozzle gallons per minute is high, and the number of nozzles is also um, not correct. So let's take a look at a water tunnel here, and you can see the soil is um, pretty tan, right, Bill? I mean, mm -hmm. that, that surface is probably hydrophobic. So you can probably guess the whole tray is probably really dry. So what they're doing is using one bar with holes drilled in it. So you're getting a lot of water out of all of those different holes. And of course, to get the water to the right target weight, you're going to have to move that very slowly. So you have a high probability of flooding in that whole process. So there, the number of the speed is slow, the number, the gallons per minute is high, and the number of nozzles, you have a high probability of a problem starting to occur. And the smaller- It looks like it's, it's pounding that plug tray. I mean, Yeah, pretty much. It is. Hmm. Now, the alternative is, of course, put more bars or more nozzles um, down. But notice on this one, that can be true. But notice that the size of the droplets is still very large. So that at any one point in, in that tray, as it moves underneath that nozzle, it's getting a lot of water. So it's a lot of water in that cell at one time. When we go to the, um, this particular um, system, you basically have got, um, in this one, it's a double-headed nozzle. So you kind of has two. If you look just in the background, they've got a single one. But this allows you to, to give a very fine amount of water in a very small area, and you can then move that underneath that bar fairly rapidly to control that. And of course, if you go to one of these Dutch um, operations where you don't often see a lot of um, 
algae and slime and sludge. Um, what they have is they've got this, this particular water tunnel has 13 heads. And each one is um, like a very fine, low volume um, head. It's a fan, but it's very low volume and it's moving those trays through so that by the time you get through all the nozzles, it's up to weight because you put the total amount of water on, but you just didn't put it on at one time. So in the first example, you put a lot of water on at one time. And in this Dutch example, you put a lot of water on over a long period of time through using multiple nozzles. So there's two different strategies. Got to review how you're doing it to see, are you creating flooding in your irrigation of your um, initial watering of your trays? So if it doesn't happen um, on the sewing line or under the water tunnel, where, where are you getting this, um, basically the slime started? Well, technique counts. You know, how are you using um, and what are you using goes into hand watering 101. Um, sometimes people are watering so the nozzle is facing down, which is disastrous because you're putting a lot of water in one spot at one time. If you can also, if you water up, like the picture on the right shows, basically you're putting um, a lot of water over a large area and moving so that you're not putting, you're not flooding anywhere. Now, an interesting example of walk time. So how fast they're going through. We had um, an example, we had two growers, same crop, sown at the same time in two different greenhouses. The one grower basically walked using the same nozzle as the other guy. I mean, it was literally the same nozzle, same gallons per minute, the whole nine yard, everything was the same. The difference was how fast they walked. The one basically in 90 seconds walked down the bench watering, okay? The other person basically did it in about three minutes, twice as long. Which, which guy, which greenhouse? Do you think Bill had algae in it? The second one. Absolutely. And not just a little bit. That guy had a lot of algae just because he watered too slow. So when you're training your growers, especially if they're doing germination on the bench or af actually after they've moved them out onto the bench, make sure that they understand that fast multiple times is better than slow once. It's kind of a whole different mindset, mm -hmm. but fast. And of course, the right tool for the right job is absolutely critical because every single nozzle out there has a different gallon per minute rating. Look at your nozzles and determine what's the right nozzle droplet size for you to be watering with. And you use the right nozzle at the right time. Because I can't tell you how many greenhouses I walk into. It's one nozzle fits all or one thumb on the end of the hose is good enough. And then they wonder, why do we have algae problems? Flooding is a function of your technique, water up, water down, your walk speed, fast or slow, and the nozzles gallop per minute. So you think of that when you're thinking about how do we prevent flooding? Keep that in mind. Okay, so a lot of people use booms. What about booms? Now, booms are kind of one of those interesting things we ran into early on when we had kind of this aha moment. We were looking at them, wondering why, why do we have uh, this moving flood as the boom was going down the bench? And so again, we basically looked at that and looked at the different types of nozzles. And there are a gazillion different types of nozzles. 
you've ever had to go change your nozzles from the original ones, confusion sets in because what should you get? Should you get fans? Should you get um, <clears throat> cones? Should you get hollow cones, square cones? I mean, it's like your head could pop. Now, let's, let's make this fairly straightforward and simple and see what's happening. If we use just a flat fan, pretty standard, run-of-the-mill versus a full cone. And a full cone means there's water all the way. It's not a hollow cone where there's no water in the middle, um, but we use a full cone. And we take a look at what is the water distribution over that surface um, from the front to the back. So if you're looking from the, from the front or the back of it, basically notice it basically delivers a uniform moisture left to right. Right, Bill? I mean, you can yep. see there's a fairly uniform amount yep. of moisture, a little bit of peakiness, you know, with the cone, versus the um, flat fan, but you know, basically they're good enough. What's really critical, and this is what we found, was that from the side view, when you have a flat fan, obviously all the water is coming right in one spot as the fan moves. And so you end up with a lot of water. So if you have a versus a full cone, which spreads it out over a large area. So if you have a nozzle that is rated at say um, one gallon per minute, which is a lot, usually they're down about 0.5 or 0.1, but let's say one gallon per minute, as that flat fan moves, you're putting one gallon per minute in that one spot, whereas the full cone is spreading it out. So if you have a crop that is prone to a lot of algae, lysianthus, um, begonias, um, full cones are a good thing when you're first doing your initial irrigation and doing your initial um, setup. Then um, for other crops, going to the flat fan probably is okay. So if you're using a covering, so like if you got vermiculite on it, a flat fan is probably okay. So, you know, again, the right tool for the right job. Now, one of the big problems that we see is the growers never calibrate or check those nozzles. Because you bought it new, 10 years later, they don't always look the same. Now, there's a device that you can buy that's called a um, pattern check, and it's used to basically under spray booms under um, to see how much water. And there's a company called um, Wilmer Industries in Wilmer, Minnesota, that said, sells as Red Ball, not a ball company, um, pattern check. And it's, you basically set it flat underneath, run the boom a couple times, and then stand it up, and you can see these little red balls. Notice how um, some of the... Um, nozzle areas, there's very little water, and in some there's a lot. In fact, if you look at this carefully and calculate it, you realize that there's twice as much water being applied in some areas as there's as there are in others. And so, you know, compound this with the bouncing um, boom as it goes down the bench, you can see that you can get all these weird water patterns that generate different amounts of water. And I've seen places where people end up with streaks of slime going down the bench. And that all has to do with the fact that their nozzles have never been checked to realize that worn out nozzles put out a lot of water. Blocked filters put out very little water. Not a lot of common sense, but a lot of housekeeping. So make sure that at least once a year, you check all your nozzles to make sure that it's all working correctly. Because flooding, again, is dependent on the boom speed times the nozzle type times the gallons per minute. So we wanna make sure that we get the right match to prevent flooding. So Bill, here comes another quiz for you. Uh -oh. If you want to flood your benches, should you move the booms fast or slow? 
if you want to flood them slow. Right. So when you're trying to germinate your seeds in that first five days, should your booms be moving fast or slow? Well, I mean, you wanted to move quickly to put the water down uniformly and, and to create that wet dry cycle. Yeah. And so, you know, if you have to go and add 200 grams of water and each pass adds 50 grams, you could you could crank it down to really slow and put it on at one time. Oh. Bad plan because you're going to flood or you could basically have it go back and forth four times mm -hmm. and you can achieve the right. So when you're in the initial irrigation after you lay down your crop for germination, it's and or whether it's germination or it's when you first put um freshly transplanted plugs down, it's better to move that boom fast than it is to move it slow. Because if you move it slow, you're going to end up with a very nice slime crust and moss across it. So we've talked about a lot of um, different aspects about how you can, how it happens and how you can avoid the problem. So let's just um, review this because we talked about a bunch of different things but let's break it down to the really simple of where does it come from and how do I do it? You know, number one, where it comes from, it's the dry, fine fiber in the media that is part of the problem because that fine fiber can become hydrophobic and it floats and that hydrophobic fiber floats to the surface and that basically creates that crust layer. Once you get that crust layer forming, then when you, um, and that's due to that flooding, and it, then when it, once that crust forms, then you can basically it stays consistently wet. Um, and as consistently wet, that just basically encourages the algae to start the slime. And then the algae starts growing and then you've got moss and you've got moss and you can end up with our friends, the liverworts. Um, that compaction of that upper layer basically compounds the whole problem because it slows the movement of water, which is why it stays wet longer. Um, and that you end up, if you go out there and take a look and you see the surface of that soil being very smooth, that's a bad plan. You're in trouble. And finally, the slime forms and it's game over. So, Bill, do you feel like if you go out and um, slime up a couple trays? At oh, this I, I could definitely create slime because... So you could be I, the slime king. Yeah, ab absolutely. With that that nice layer right up top. Yeah, I could, I could kill that crop. Now okay. That I know what now that I know what to do, but I also know what not to do, which is really the goal. Right, but it but it is. Um, I think it's one of the mysteries, and every grower has one or more of these problems. The the place that I walked through, like you did one time, and I literally fell, bruised myself, had to go. I got stitches. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I really and it was because the place was just a slime pit. And, you know, I'm, I'm surprised there weren't more dead people in that greenhouse. <laughs> um, but, and they basically did it all. Yeah. They had, they had the whole checklist. So it's really, um, look, if you see that you've got a problem and, and this is what's really confuses a lot of growers is one time they don't see it. And then the next time, the next week or the next, on the next crop, they do see it and they kind of go like, what's going on? Check your weekend mm -hmm. because someone on the weekend didn't follow the rules. They flooded and they started this. And once you start the, the death spiral, you can't pull out. Mm -hmm. It's 
slime. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And if you have to warn all guests who come to your greenhouse to watch their step, it's probably time to uh, take a hard look at what's causing that algae. Yeah. And it's the same thing under the bench. Um, you know, people say, well, I got all this slime under the bench. And, mm. you know, a lot of that is because you're not using water by weight. So you're putting on too much water so that you're basically and you're not cleaning up underneath the benches. And so you got all this fine fiber that falls down. Greenhouse is empty. That fiber all dries out, becomes hydrophobic. And then basically over time, it builds up this crust layer underneath the benches. And then that crust layer then holds the water that moves slower. And then it starts, I mean, then the death spiral. So whether you're talking about in your plug trace, in your pots, or under your bench, the process is the same. And if you find that you're struggling with fungus gnats and shore flies every single year, that could be the reason. Yep. Exactly. You're, you're creating little homes for them. And they thank you for that. Hmm. So interesting. Interesting. Oh, hey, thanks for putting that slide up. Maybe because I asked you to. That's awesome. You can find all sorts of resources, probably hundreds of resources online from Tech on Demand, including videos like this. Every week I send a newsletter, goes to tens of thousands of growers covering a range of cultural and technical topics. You can subscribe on that QR code or find it at growertalks.com. We have created tons of videos, again, covering an entire range of products on or, uh, content on different products, on different cultural and technical strategies. Uh, you're going to definitely love them. The Tech on Demand podcast, there are 70 plus episodes up right now that you can go back in the archives and check out. You can find it on Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Odyssey, pretty much all the different apps. And if you want to join a network of more than 5,000 peers around the world and post and answer questions for greenhouse professionals, I suggest you join the Greenhouse Tech Team group on Facebook. Just search Greenhouse Tech Team, answer a couple of simple questions to prove that you're not a hobbyist, that you are a professional, and I will let you write in. And we'll Thank you again so much for your time. And anytime you have a topic, give me a call and we will turn it into a video and podcast. Thank you so much, Will. Well, thank you for letting me tell my story about the um, about this because it's been a, long, a lifetime passion of how did they do that? It's been a mystery. <laughs> and now that I've got the mystery solved, hopefully this will keep other people from having to deal with it. So thanks for letting me share this uh, really fun topic. Absolutely. And that's always our goal. I am Bill Calkins with Tech on Demand, and on behalf of our entire team, thanks for listening and watching, and take care out there. Please take a minute to leave us a positive review. It'll help us reach more greenhouse professionals. Mm -hmm.